Well, once again, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, um, we have just been singing of the fact that we are joining in some ways with saints who have gone before us, those who right now are gathered around your throne seeing you clearly. Um, but you know, that isn't the case for us yet, that right now we see only in part. Um, and so we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us, that you are a God who meets us in our weakness, that you are a God who helps us to understand what oftentimes is very confusing to us. And so we pray for that now, that that you would be present with us right now as we are looking at your word, that you would speak to our souls and draw us near to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I understand from what I heard a few weeks ago at our congregational meeting that I'm beginning to get a reputation for a pattern, that when I preach, it seems like, at least according to one particular elder, uh, whose initials are Tom Vanderveen, um, that, that he, you know, that I, that I tend to kind of lean too much into 80s films, as if maybe I'm just kind of a little too stuck in my childhood. So I thought I would really stretch myself today and begin with a film from the 1940s. It's a Wonderful Life, which is without a doubt one of the, the finest films of all time. And if you have seen it, and if you haven't, why haven't you? If you have seen it, you'll know that George Bailey is the central character, and he goes, there's this time about, I don't know, two-thirds of the way through the film where he is kind of brought now to the, to the lowest point. The world is kind of crumbling around him. And you might remember this scene where he's in the bar and he's just kind of like mumbling, and, and as he's mumbling, because he has nowhere else to go, he actually turns to God in prayer. And he says, God, oh God, dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man. But if you are there, and if you hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope. Show me the way. And you might remember, if you know the film, that right after what happens, he gets punched in the face. And then he drives his car into a tree. And then shortly thereafter, he finds himself alone on a bridge contemplating suicide. And because he is not privy to what is going on in heaven, because he doesn't understand all that's happening behind the scenes, it appears to him that his prayer did nothing. That it was completely useless. And I find myself, and I wonder if you do as well, moved by that scene every time I see it. We see this movie every year. Because I think I know a little bit what that feels like. I mean, I'm, I've never been in a place that George Bailey is. But I, I, I know, and I suspect many of you do, know kind of moments of helplessness where we don't even have good words to say, but we just, we just call out to God, please help. And I, I know also what it's like to hear the silence that oftentimes comes after that prayer. And I wonder if you do as well. I wonder, maybe some of you even this morning would kind of identify with George Bailey when he says, I'm not a praying man. Maybe you don't feel like you pray that regularly. And so in times of desperation, when you do feel like you need to turn to God, you're almost embarrassed and you're pretty convinced that he's not interested in hearing you. And so when you say you don't know what's going to happen and then you just wait. And, and wouldn't it be great if the movies were real and we actually knew that like an angel would come and help us like he helps George. But of course, those are just movies. 
Except, actually, I would suggest that the book of Daniel, and specifically the chapter that we're reading right now, suggests otherwise, that there might be more to this than we first think. So, our chapter is largely dominated by, I suppose you could say, a George Bailey-like prayer, a, a cry to God for help. Daniel is praying for himself, but not just for himself. He's praying for his people, and he's praying for his city, Jerusalem, and there, because it represents to him this whole relationship with God that humanity has. It matters deeply to him, and he is crying out in helplessness. But what's interesting, even from the outset, is to, to, to kind of like almost, it, it tells us first why Daniel cries out. And it's not what we think. It's not a George Bailey-like situation. It's not like everything is crumbling apart. We're told two details at the very beginning of our passage. First, we're told that now we're in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the Mede, who has now occupied the area of the Chaldeans. And, and the significance of that is that it means the reign of Babylon is over. The Medes and the Persians now have conquered. And Israel's oppressors, the people who sent them into exile, are now vanquished. And either it's already happened or it's about to happen that Israel is about to be sent back home from exile. It's the first thing he mentions. The second thing he also says is that he, dis he perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 Seventy years, he's read in Jeremiah 25, 70 years before Jerusalem is restored, and it's about 70 years since Daniel first was moved to Babylon. So you would think, actually, that these two things, Babylon is done, Israel's about to go home, 70 years are almost up, would cause Daniel to have a prayer of rejoicing, of celebration, but that isn't the mood that we see. Do you notice that he says, then I turned my face to the Lord God seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. This is, this is desperation. This is helplessness. This is deep longing that he's, he's humbling himself. And, and I think the question we're meant to ask is why? Why is Daniel moved by these two things to a place of, of helplessness? And I think it's important to understand two other details about what's kind of the context here. One is to recognize that in that time, numbers oftentimes weren't literal. They oftentimes stood, symbolized for something. They described something. And especially that's true for the numbers 7 and 70. They oftentimes represented not a literal 7, but a sign of completeness. So 70 sometimes could, could kind of mean the time it takes to fulfill things and make things complete. And I, I wonder if as Daniel is studying Jeremiah, it occurs to him that this might not be just literally 70 years. And that concern is compounded even more by, if you remember what we saw last week, if you weren't here last week, Daniel was given a vision, it's about eight years ago now, that he was given a vision where he saw the rise and fall of two kingdoms. First, there was a ram that represented the Medes and the Persians, and then after they enjoyed a time of reign for, for many years, then a goat representing Greece would come, and then after the goat, there's a horn that arises that persecutes God's people. That was this somewhat devastating vision that Daniel saw. And, and here's the thing. The prophecy said that Babylon would be conquered by Medes and, and the Persians. And that would begin this whole process of the vision that he saw. And now the Medes and the Persians have conquered, which, which I think Daniel recognizes. So wait a second, that, that means this is really happening. 
that means that it really could be hundreds and hundreds of years. And so as he is just kind of emotionally just trying to process that, that is what leads to his prayer. Because remember, this is a time of exile. This is a time where he's experiencing, and God's people are experiencing a time of, of punishment, consequences for their failure. And he's wrestling with the possibility that those consequences, that, that distance, the hardship that they're going to experience is going to last much much longer, and things are even going to get harder. And so it's, it's with this in the background that Daniel prays. And, I mean, on one hand, of course, his prayer is not exactly the same as, as George Bailey's prayer of, you know, I'm not a praying man, but I'm at the end of the rope. Show me the way. But there are some similarities. Most of the prayer that we have before us is an acknowledgement of the fact that that God should not be expected to hear because they have, because God's people have so utterly, completely failed. Specifically, he says repeatedly in different ways, we haven't listened. We haven't listened. God, you gave us your law. You gave us your instructions. You loved us. You told us what to do, and we didn't hear you. You told us how to kind of follow you. We didn't do that, and now here we are. This is our fault. And yet at the very end, there is this call, this, this helplessness, Lord, even still, not, we don't deserve this, but please, would you forgive us? Would you please listen and hear the, the final verses of the prayer, O oh Lord, hear, O oh Lord, forgive, O oh Lord, pay attention and act. God, would you please restore your people? I mean, essentially the prayer is, oh Lord, we know we're not a hearing people, but we are at the end of our ropes. Would you please rescue us? And the question I want us to ask as we are, and I think the question we're meant to ask as we're looking at this is, what happens when someone prays a prayer like this? Might be a strange way of putting it, but just think about it. Like, whether it's Daniel or you or me, when, when there is this helpless prayer of confession, for that's what it is, where it's like, God, I know I'm not deserving, but Lord, would you please help me? What actually goes on? We, we, we probably know what this feels like. We, we know what it's like at certain moments to just say, Lord, please help so what happens after that? Because if we're honest, oftentimes when we say words like Daniel has said, it just seems like words, like silence, like nothing at all happens when we cry out to God and in prayer and helplessness. So what goes on? What goes on in, in heaven when we ask these things? For Daniel, if, if he were like an ordinary man, he might feel the way that we're just describing. He might feel like his words just did words and then nothing else happened. But we've already said Daniel is not an ordinary person. We've been told that he lives an unusual life where he's been given a different way of seeing. That curtain that divides earth from heaven, the curtain that divides the physical from the spiritual, where we don't see what's going on. That curtain oftentimes becomes sheer for Daniel, and he's actually able to see a realm that is normally invisible to all of us. 
And here he is able to be, he is given, I suppose you could say, a behind-the-scenes look of what happens after he prays, of what's truly going on from the perspective of God in heaven. And so also he shares with us, we are able to get a better understanding of what happens when someone hopelessly, helplessly cries out to God. What we are told next is that Gabriel comes. He says in verse 20, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had first seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight. So if you were here with us last week, you might remember that after Daniel saw this devastating vision, God sent an angel, a literal angel, not just Clarence, a real angel, probably terrifying, Gabriel. And Gabriel comes to explain and give understanding. And and once again, God has sent Gabriel to Daniel so that Daniel can, can know something that he doesn't otherwise know. And if we were to just focus on the last part of what Gabriel says, beginning in verse 25, It might seem like our worst fears, that Daniel's worst fears, are confirmed, that prayer seems to do nothing. So verse 25 to the end of the chapter is one of the more complicated parts of an already complicated book in Daniel. And um, without getting too far into the weeds, let me just say that the key to understand this, I think, is to recognize that this is a, a restatement and a clarification of the very same things that he saw in the vision in chapter 8. So there is this language of weeks. It's important to know that the word week literally just means seven. That's the word for weeks in Hebrew, seven. So it's actually literally at the very beginning you see 70 sevens. And so here's what I think is is going on here. Let me just kind of cover it quickly. And then if you're with us in Sunday school a couple weeks from now, we can go more into detail. So Gabriel basically confirms to Daniel, you're right to think that Jeremiah, when he says it's 70 years, that that's not literal. It's actually 70 sevens. And then he goes on to divide those 70 sets of sevens into three different groups. So first he talks about seven sevens, that is 49 years. From the time when Israel goes into exile to the time they return is a time of 49 years where Isaiah speaks of Cyrus, God's anointed, makes a decree to have God's people return. That's the first set of seven sevens, the 49 years of exile. But then there's a much longer set of sevens, 62 sevens. That's 434 years. From the time that Daniel has first gone into Babylon until the time of Antiochus is exactly 434 years. And that's what's being spoken of here. During this time, Gabriel says, Jerusalem will begin to be rebuilt, but it will be a time of struggle. There will be things happening, but it won't be easy. And then we've had the seven sevens and the 62 sevens. There is one final seven, the 70th seven, one final set of seven years, and that is the seven years of Antiochus Epiphanes, whom we spoke of last week. For seven years, Antiochus will start having a conflict with Israel. Halfway through that time is when he steps into the temple, when he sacrifices to Zeus. Halfway through that time is when he forbids all forms of sacrifice to the true God. Things become awful until the end of that seven years, where, as it says at the end of our passage, the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. 
Now, even if we don't understand all the details, I think the key, again, to recognize is this is a restatement, a reaffirmation that what Daniel saw in chapter 8, that vision that frightened him, is still the truth. These things are going to happen. And again, if this is all that we see in this passage, what it would seem to indicate is that Daniel's prayer means nothing. Daniel's prayed, God says, sorry, I'm still planning on doing everything that I planned on, and I don't really care about your prayer. That's how we can interpret it if we just saw this. But there is a crucial piece to this that I think lies at the very heart of our passage that goes right before. So right before this, we talked in verse 21 about how Daniel comes and then in verse 22, it says, He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. So it's clear that Gabriel's purpose is to help Daniel understand, which obviously implies that Daniel doesn't. That there is something that even as Daniel is praying, it doesn't make sense to him. There's something he doesn't yet understand that is very important for God that Daniel does come to understand. And this is not a new thing. If you were here last week, you might remember the very last thing we hear in chapter 8 is that as he saw the vision, he was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it, he says. And still eight years later, he still doesn't understand. Now, what doesn't Daniel understand about the vision? I mean, he, he knows... The, the meaning, because it was told to him. He knows that it talks about the empire of the Medes and Persians reigning for a while, and the empire of the Greeks reigning for a while, until you have this figure who persecutes. He, he understands the details. That's not the problem. The problem is he doesn't understand the significance. He doesn't understand what it actually means. See, if, if right now they're in exile because of their sin... And now the vision is saying, that's going to last a whole lot longer, and it's actually going to get harder at times. Doesn't that mean that, that there is no forgiveness? Doesn't that mean that they have sinned so far that God is just done with them? Doesn't it mean that God is still furious with them? That's why Gabriel comes. And notice what Gabriel says in verse 23, and there's a detail of translation that I want to talk about here. It says, At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. A word from God. God, the moment you prayed, God sent a message. He sent me with a message that he wants you to understand. I've come to tell you that word. And what is the message? What is the word? Well, here's the translation detail. That little word, for, that comes right after, could just as easily be translated that. And oftentimes in Hebrews, it introduces content of speech. And I would suggest that's what's going on here. And so here's what I think Gabriel actually says. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you that you are greatly That's the thing you don't understand, Daniel. You've seen this vision. You've concluded things that are not true. Here's what you need to understand. That you are greatly loved. That you are treasured by God. And we should recognize that this is not just a personal message from God to Daniel. 
Because remember, when, when Daniel is praying, he's not just praying on his behalf. Daniel is praying on behalf of his people. He's confessing both his sins and the sins of his people, which means when God is addressing him, he's not just speaking to Daniel, but whom Daniel represents. He's speaking to all who, like Daniel, call on God and are looking to him for help. He is saying to them, he's saying to you and to me, here's what you need to understand. You are greatly loved. We, we sometimes get in times of prayer where we pray and we don't see an answer. And then we, we think that maybe it's because we don't believe enough or we're not passionate enough, so we try to work that place. Or maybe we need to re, rework the words and, and it's still nothing happens. And, and so then we start concluding God just must, either might, must not hear or must not care must not be on my side. And, and what God says to us in the same way that he said to Daniel is, here's what you need to understand. You are greatly loved. And it's not just the word. Notice how it's being demonstrated here. So, so one fact that we see from the very outset that keeps on being repeated here is this, this element of, of swiftness. Notice in verse 20, it says, while I was speaking and praying. So he hasn't even finished his prayer, and Gabriel just shows up. And notice what it talks about how Gabriel showed up. It says that the man Gabriel, who I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight. He was, he was booking it. He was going quick to get to me. And then verse 23, what does Gabriel say? At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. There wasn't any delay. The moment you started praying, Daniel, God immediately said, you need to go. There is no hesitation on God's part, which means that, that God has been carefully paying attention to Daniel the whole time. And the moment he hears Daniel cry out, he immediately acts without any sense of delay. Because Daniel is greatly loved. I mean, isn't this an amazing thought to think about, just if we just pause for a moment to recognize that, you know, how often have you tried calling something and you've been put on hold and it says, we're happy to have you call us. The wait time for the next operator will be, you know, 17 hours. And, and here's the thing, that's not what happens when you pray. There is not like some sort of cue that you were put on. God is watching and listening and he hears you the moment you call out to him. And, and, and the moment you do, it doesn't suddenly put you on like this 90-day backlog where God's like, I will get to it. I just have so many other things to do first. No, God acts immediately, without delay. He, he will act oftentimes in ways we don't understand, ways that we cannot recognize, in timings that oftentimes will frustrate us because we're creatures and he is God. But he doesn't act reluctantly. He acts with an urgency. He acts with a, a, an eagerness to respond when we call out to him because you and I are greatly loved. And what's more, notice that there is not a reluctance on God's part to give Daniel what he is asking for. In fact, God desires to grant Daniel's deepest longings. What does Daniel pray for? He prays, O Lord, forgive Oh, Lord, restore your place. And, and what does Gabriel say is going to happen? Verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. In other words, he's saying it's not just 
a temporary reprieve that I'm going to give you, Daniel. My plan is to deal with forgiveness once and for all. I'm going to end evil. I'm going to end sin. I'm going to end guilt. I'm going to end the consequences of guilt. It's going to be done. And when Daniel prays for a restoration, for Jerusalem to to be back what it was, what does God promise? He says even beyond that, when when Gabriel speaks on his behalf, he speaks of to bring an everlasting righteousness. Do you remember in chapter 7, the the promise of the Son of Man coming to establish God's righteous kingdom forever? Here's what it's saying. He's going to make things last forever perfectly. To seal both vision and prophet, which is another way of saying to fulfill every promise that God has ever promised. And to anoint a most holy place. To make the connection between God and humanity perfect again. To fully restore the relationship. Gabriel is saying, Daniel, here's what you're asking for. I want you to understand God is intent on giving you way more than you've asked for. He is intent on granting you the deepest desires of your heart because you are greatly loved. You know, here's, here's a remarkable and a comforting thought. You can never ask too much of God. There is never a time when you're praying and God's like, I can't believe you asked for something that big. Whatever we long for, no matter how deep and how great it is, God always intends to give us more. God is more committed to your well-being than you are. Again, how he answers sometimes will be foreign to us, it will be confusing to us, but we need to understand that underneath the reality is that God is intensely longing and desiring to make us whole and joyful and satisfied, and he will not rest until that is complete. He is more eager to do you good than you are eager to do yourself good. That is what we see, because because we are greatly loved. This is what we're meant to understand. When we cry out to God, what's happening behind the scenes? Activity, things jump into action. God hears, he responds, he acts, and he pours out his generosity. That's what happens whenever you or I pray. That's what happens when Daniel prayed. And so as we come to the end of this passage, there is, on one hand, a sense nothing has really changed, right? God has said, this is the plan that I have. And his prayer has not altered that plan in one sense. It's still going to be a long and hard road for God's people. And yet, everything has changed. Because Daniel now understands that even though he doesn't know why it will take this long, he doesn't really know why it's going to be this hard, he knows that he does not need to be afraid. Because he knows that God hears him. He knows that God is generous, and he knows that he is deeply loved. We, sadly, don't get to have, probably most of us at least, maybe all of us, have an angel suddenly interpreting for us the moments after we've prayed, but I would suggest there is a real sense that you and I have had actually something better. I mean, there's no way Daniel could have understood when Gabriel is speaking about this long period that there was an intentionality about God, that God was laying the groundwork, not just for sending another angel, but for actually sending his son into the world. And his son shows the very heart of God towards all who are crying out to him. His son laying down his life to the cross 
and rising again and in every moment saying to his people, you are deeply loved and bringing about an end to sin and the beginning of eternal righteousness. Paul, Paul tries, the Apostle Paul tries to help us to understand because he knows, like Daniel, we don't understand. And here's what he says in Romans 8. Look, listen to me. If God didn't spare his own son for you, how in the world can you think that he won't give you everything else? How can you not recognize if God is willing to give his own son and if the son is willing to lay down his life to rescue you, how can you not see that you are deeply loved? You and I sometimes can feel really stuck in prayer, right? It, it can feel long, it can feel painful, it can feel like nothing is happening, and no matter how many times we pray, we don't see the answer because we don't know what's going on in heaven. We don't know what God is doing, but what we can know is God is doing something. And what we can know is what God is doing is good, because God has shown us His heart for us, and that heart is love. We are in the first week of Advent, uh, sorry, of Lent, as, as Nick pointed out just a little while ago. And I want to invite the musicians to come up because we're going to do something during the season of Lent just a little bit differently. Um, Daniel has in some ways modeled for us a way of calling out to God in helplessness. And I want us to have a time where we can do the same, where wherever we're at, maybe we're very aware of our sin and need to call out to God for forgiveness, where we feel helpless and need God's help to use this as a time for doing that in the knowledge that we have a God who welcomes that and listens and loves. So what we're going to be doing over the course of Lent is uh, we're going to be doing that both through song and through silent prayer. So in just a moment's time, we'll be beginning, uh, the, the musicians will be leading us in uh, song, Psalm 51, and we can use that as a time of confession. And then during the middle of the song, there'll be a time where we can silently confess what's in our heart. Um, and then um, when the song's over, uh, I will lead us to what's after. So let's, let's take a moment and song.